Hello, and welcome to New Matter, the SLAS podcast. I'm Mike Tarselli, and I'm the scientific director. Joining me today is Regis Professor of Chemistry, Lee Cronin from the University of Glasgow. How are you, Lee? I'm good, thank you. Excellent. So, Lee, quick challenge question. Tell me about what you do, and if you can, do it in 10 words or less. Well, it's going to take me longer to think than that. In 10 words and less, I want to program chemistry using computers and do computations using chemistry. Okay, that's about 14, but I'll, I'll let it have it. Great. Computations with chemistry. Describe what goes into that. You obviously can't just open up a computer today and tell it, go compute this for me. So what does your group do? So my group has a device, like almost imagine it's six groups actually working in one big team. So we're trying to crack origin of life. Um, we're trying to automate chemistry. Um, we're trying to 3D print chemical reactors. We're trying to do self-assembly. We're making chemical robots. And we're also making chemical computers. Okay, six things. And we've only got about 30 minutes on this podcast. So which one do you want to jump into first? Which is the meatiest or has most relevance to this lab automation and screening focused audience? I guess the computing team is probably the best one to talk about. And the computer is just a, I suppose, a universal robot that can do any chemical synthesis. That was the way I conceived it, like a universal computer, similar along the lines that was conceived by the, you know, the fathers and mothers of computing, Ada Lovelace, Alan Turing, John von Neumann, Shannon, and so on. Excellent. And, and you say any reaction. So the computer obviously would have to have some sort of arms and, and eyes to use a horrible anthropomorphic metaphor, but it would have to see what it was getting and then move those reagents into close contact. Tell me about how it adapts its senses. Yeah. So um, the actual first version of the computer is a little bit dumber than that. It's almost like a clockwork music box where Got all it. the notes are put in the right place where you wind it up, it just plays the tune. And the way it works is a series of pumps and valves that, you, that are dressed around the round bottom flask in the fumid. So there's no robot arm. There's no droid, if you like. It's all moving liquid around without robotic digits. But it can do unknown stuff. But what we we're trying to focus on is this idea. If we could write a chemical program, could we make any molecules in the literature? And we've just cracked that problem. To be clear, that means any molecule in principle that's been published, uh, the synthesis is in batch, the computer can now make it. And to be exceedingly clear, we're, we're talking about organic molecules only, or do you also agree with high complex, high valency, inorganic salts or materials Anything. or what have you? Anything. There is no limitation. Yeah. No the limitation. only limitation is your imagination. And if the literature is correct. Got it. So tell me a little bit about the literature being correct. Uh, which protocols do you find are easiest to validate and resynthesize and which need a little bit of a love and shininess? So yes, so, the, the, so that's a very good point. I should kind of emphasize the computer has kind of three modes. It is kind of duplicate literature mode. And to do that, we tend to use um, at the moment very high quality journals. And I'm not just talking about high impact, I'm talking about like organic synthesis where they've already gone through that curation, they've selected good reactions, a number of groups have already done that chemistry. And that's a really good test bed for the computer because, of course, a lot of literature is written in ambiguity, so that's kind of the make. Then we have the kind of lane assist, where you're doing the reaction and maybe you're drifting out of the lane, like you might have in your car, and it'll just put you back in. 
So a little bit of feedback, change the temperature, change the pressure, change the pH, change the solvent slightly, keep it on track. And then we've got the kind of other one going on, which is the discover, which is the discovery of new reactions, new molecules, new processes. And right now we've just established make, we're now getting into lane assist, and we also have discover working at the same time. That's a good analogy. It is. And remind me for our process uh, interested folks, I think that this also does its own workups and concentrations and analytics at the other end. Tell me about yeah, the, the sensing at the other side. Absolutely. To be clear, Computer Make will read the literature, turn it into code, program the robot. You put the reagents into the robot, and then it will then spit out the purified molecule. You might have to change the purification protocol to check that's correct, but we've got automatic systems to do that. But basically, you should get it out in a pure format, expect to get out of the recipe in the literature at the scale given in the literature. And what we're trying to do right now is develop a standard way of validating the literature and almost having like a versioning tool so we can check how good it is. Is it as pure as we want? Is it as reproducible as we want? Um, are the factors in the literature, the time, was it just a lunch time or a weekend it was left? Can we reduce those times? So you could say, oh, I'm going to do this reaction. It's good. It looks like overnight, but I'm just going to do it for one hour and check. Oh, look, for one hour it worked. Correct. And what you can do is almost like GitHub your syntheses. So do you have aflatoxin V1, V2, V3, strychnine V5? And that's the idea. Excellent. And do you have this efficiency? Um, I mean, I guess the computer has only really been in running operation for a year or two up to now. Um, correct me if that's wrong. But I suppose over time, you could look at a ChemRev in 10 years where you said, look, we went through 10 generations of this molecule and you guys have been doing it so wrong for 150 years. Now we know you can do it in three days. Well, not, I wouldn't say wrong, just we've found a way to operate. I think the computer is going to run a bit like computing revolution, whereas We've kind of got the virtue. I think we, I mean, maybe I'm being slightly um, overconfident that we I think that maybe we haven't got yet the Apple One, but we've maybe got the ENIAC, right? Which is the first kind oh, wow. of working in the lab. And you imagine, and I mean, I was trying to be controversial on Twitter the other day. I said, right now, the first computers in the 1920s, 1930s were human beings, mainly um, females who had just been at numeracy school, because that's the way it worked back then. And they were basically given a pen and paper and a slide and they would do calculations. And they were called computers. And I wonder if a synthetic chemist in 100 years from now will be a robot that just makes stuff. And will kind of lose what synthetic or the chemical computer is, you know, in terms of what a computer. Computers were originally people, not machines. Right. We, we've had this sort of analogy before with the mobile phone in your pocket, right? How many different industries it's collapsed and how many different things it's replaced. I mean, nobody really sits down for an oil painting of your family anymore, right? You pull out the mobile, click, there you go. <laughs> All right. So tell me, uh, as this is happening, your students are obviously getting a, a PhD a week as they finish new molecules, or are they in the lab at all? Because to set this in time, right now we're in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I wonder, um, how is your group at Glasgow adapting to this? Well, I think like every other, I'll give you three answers to the question. The first answer is we're quite a big group. And so because we have a good group infrastructure and I'm a bit of a control freak, so we have a, you know, a server system, a project management system, a way of collaborating using Slack. Actually, the day-to-day -day stuff, we were, and because also I travel, or I once traveled on a thing called an airplane, 
And I had what is this? <laughs> I once had to be at a work out of a hotel room, of, uh, you know, work everywhere. I had to be mobile and fully interact with my team. So I had to set up systems to do that. And so I could actually work with them. So actually, from a kind of admin point of view, going uh, to lockdown wasn't so painful. However, like everyone, I think it's very painful to let go of the lab. You do an experiment. You're worried about your PhD. You're worried about your postdoc getting a job. You're worried about finishing the paper. You're worried about what the referees would say. And all that was really tricky. But of course, so that's not answer number two. They were obviously very sad to leave the, the lab. Answer number three is like, I said to my group on first Zoom me, I said, you know, damn it, we're in the you know, 2020s. Um, wouldn't it be good if we'd been developing some robotics for the last 10 years? And how could we implement that in the lockdown? And, and Robots course, don't get sick. <laughs> <laughs> and what we've been running in the past, we've got 12 computers in the lab at the moment. Um, and, the, and some of them were running in a kind of uh, pared down mode as long, uh, during the lockdown. Now, as we're going into social distancing and back in the lab, People are going to typically would come in and set up the computer at their shift and then let it run and then go and operate it from home. And so it's amazing. You've got synthetic chemists, like, literally in their kitchen at home, basically going, yeah, do that extraction, check this. I mean, it's mind-blowing. And we've got a project right now called Chemify 100, which is the project to take 100 molecules um, from the literature, convert them into code, and run them for real, and then put the code on a Chemify Spotify website so that other people, if they go to the effort of building or buying a robot that runs like what we have, they will be able to run those codes and get those molecules automatically. That's just amazing. So it's, it's the, to use another American style analogy, it's the red box of molecules. You walk up to your Walmart or your CVS and you say, I want uh, this molecule, this brevitoxin today, gone. Yeah, and go. I think the idea is, and we've got a whole bunch of different product projects right now where we're making natural products and computers, trying to basically make chiral auxiliaries, making hard-to-make catalysts, making oxidants and th- re- unstable reagents that you wouldn't make, keep on the shelf. And so you can just dial them up and then library them. And the computer is not set up to replace the synthetic chemist doing new stuff. Remember, I was very careful to say the computer can do make, kind of optimize and make and discover. But if a chemist goes in the lab and says, right, I need to make a new bond today that's never been made before, or I need to make a new molecule that's never been made before, and I know what I want target-wise, I'm, computer's not yet at a stage, and it might never be there where it replaces that final kind of human creative intuition about how I go about that. It might be the human never touches any chemistry hardware ever again. In the same way, a digital artist may never actually put pen to paper. It's just a, you know, a stylus on a, a screen. Or the Detroit auto mechanics don't really go with themselves and bolt the things into the car. <laughs> they have robots for that. You know, exactly. It's like when I take my Audi to the garage, um, they put, plug something into the USB port and go, oh, yeah, yeah, we need to get another chip or we need, a chip, <laughs> we need to finish this. And I'm just like, but come on, where's the monkey wrench? You know, where's right, where's the oil? Come on. <laughs> oh, that's great. I'd like to extend the metaphor with you, and maybe this won't land as well with uh, those who, who never saw them in operation, but Blockbuster and Major Video, stores you used to go and get DVDs and videotapes physically from. Do you envision a world in which once you have this Spotify of your Chemify 100 set up, that companies won't so much publish literature, but they'll have synthesis packets that they will then rent to you if you need to make a molecule of interest? 
So I mean, I'm I'm, I'm in the middle of starting a company that's gonna that's gonna do exactly that. The first stage of the company is gonna sell robots to anyone who wants to buy them. I'm I can't release the name. Right? The academic version of the robot has got one. I'm calling it in the lab. But basically, these, these chemical robots um, are going to convert to the, our standard that we developed in Glasgow and, and basically be like a, a kind of Apple OS or MS for a virtual machine to do all chemistry in. And then, so the, there's kind of three stages. We're going to build the robots and sell them to people who want to have them to a module specification. Mm-hmm. Then there's a software that we can basically then start to create and collaborate with people. And then pharmaceutical companies can create their own bespoke synthesis routes, and then we find a way of encrypting it so you can outsource and say it's synthetic chemists in Princeton or in Glasgow or in Shanghai or in Milan. Okay, why don't you make these molecules? And they make the molecules and they get tested at their local facility. And then you have a kind of almost like a, a, a cloud-based approach to chemical synthesis and molecular discovery. That's super cool. And, and I can't wait till we get there. Um, so tell me a little bit more about um, the origin of life chemistry. I can't let you get out of the science section without telling me why you want to create new life. Um, so the reason I built the computer was actually to build a robot to crack the origin of life. I think there's a bit of a cultural... I think the interest about the computer is it also is culturally very disruptive to the organic chemists. And the organic chemists have a particular culture of, you know, campaigning to make molecules. You know, it's really hard, lots of labor. And there's quite a disruptive concept, so a lot of people were kind of scared about it. But the reason why I had to invent it was that literally I need to do thousands, if not millions, if not countless trillions of random reactions to figure out what happened at the origin of life. I know we have prebiotic chemistry and there's geochemical limitations and so on, but simply put, if there are no complex molecules on Earth, and those complex molecules on Earth now are put there by evolution, where does that information come from? Now, prebiotic chemists have one answer to that right now. It is magic because RNA gets there. And they don't really mean that. And I think it's an anthropomorphic problem that lots of synthetic chemists imagine that the origin of life, there was a synthetic chemist making RNA and lipids and stuff and chucking them in a pot. And of course, evolution is biology's problem. But actually, it isn't. It's chemistry's problem. And so what I want to do in the lab is use the computer array to invent the very simplest molecules that are capable of cooperating to start an evolutionary dynamic. And that dynamic invents complexity to survive. And I think that's why we came at. And when we realized we were making a mess with the computer, we realized, hey, maybe we could also use the same digital architecture and kind of language approach to basically be used to program organic synthesis and then inorganic synthesis. So you came at it from one purpose and repurposed it for something else. Um, I got to know, first thing, origin of life. Um, You're coming at it from the carbonaceous standpoint, but have you read extensively and do you believe that maybe there's other forms such as silicon-based life, germanium-based life, etc.? I mean, I have no idea what the chemical limits are for life. That's why I want to do it. And actually, I come at this from an inorganic chemist, so I'm, I'm in favor of making molybdenum-based life, actually. Oh, wow. you know, and I'd like to make the molybdenites on planet. <laughs> or the cronins on the, you know, whatever. But I, I, don't, I think that um, that question is really interesting to look at. I mean, Venus is close by, and we have no idea what inorganic chemistry is going on, on the surface of Venus. Nothing. We've got one or two Russian probes. I think one even lander survived for a few hours. 
going back to Venus and looking at the chemistry on Venus would be a wonderful thing to do. It's very close by. We should do it. But what I would want to say, the quick answer to your question is that it's the chemistry of biology on Earth, or I should say that the chemistry that biology uses on Earth is a consequence of the Earth's mass and size and the chemistry that's on Earth. Yes, so there has to be a lot of water, carbon, 1G, 25 degrees. Who's to say that there are larger planets somewhere, higher gravity, much denser atmosphere, different chemistries are possible. And until we understand what small molecules can do to become evolvable, we aren't going to know what the limits are. And so one of the important things is to make an artificial life form on Earth under a range of conditions and see how that chemistry really becomes more complex. I love that answer. And, and for those of you who are Star Trek fans listening, this is why the Vulcans were so strong. Extra gravity, right? So the, uh, the devil in the dark, which is where the synthesis... The, the second life form was. I think that that episode was written by Gene L. Kuhn. Mm-hmm. Later on, when he wrote Spock's Brain, he changed his name. And the reason he changed his name, he was actually working for another um, company. And do you know what he changed his name to? <laughs> he changed it to Lee Cronin. So two years ago, I showed my son Spock's Brain and froze it. And he was like, wow, was that you? I was like, <laughs> I would have been 10. <laughs> right. But it, yeah, exactly. But that's a, a, a kind of factoid for the Trek fans out there. Oh, that's amazing. I love this. Uh, so we could devolve into Star Trek back and forth for the next hour. But I should ask you, what is the near future of the chemistry and automation overlap? And what is it you believe we're going to be doing very differently in five years' time that we have not done to date? Okay, so I, I can only talk from my own wheelhouse as a synthetic chemist. And I think that if I have my way, all fumehoods in the future will be completely automated. And I don't think they will be human. Or, you know, one of the reasons I made the computer and the chemical robots in the way I made them wasn't to make them humanoid. Like, you know, if in the future you were going to put robots in a space where you had a, a kind of the air control, would you do it in the same human walking? I don't know. But there'll be a lot more automation, uh, modular. And also what we're going to be doing is we need to be teaching undergraduates and graduates different skills to what they have now. So I would love to be teaching people about chemical digital identifiers, about algorithms, about design of experiments, about robotic uh, kind of um, integration, cyber chemical um, considerations, cyber physical. And I think that there is a, there's a big gap. What I can see actually uh, looking at SLAS conferences, there's lots of it's like a pipette robot paradise, right? You know, but I think that that will change a lot. We'll move from the pipette robot paradise to the chemical robot paradise where we're moving some seriously difficult chemicals around and able to run some pretty hard programs because biological kind of manipulations are all aqueous-based. They're relatively easy-ish. Um, but when we start going to hard chemistry, we're going to have to look at new chemical resistances, you know, new types of ways of doing chemistry, The excellent thing is not only is it full employment for the people making new robots and software, it's going to be full employment for the synthetic chemist because there's going to be a Moore's law, or let's call it Cronin's law. I predict that in five years' time, the number of known molecules that we'll get access to, reliable access to, will start to exponentially increase. Think about that in terms of the drug discovery, materials discovery, um, life-changing discovery for the world. 
if we're able to do that. The number of molecules we've been making as human beings, is that new molecules is actually quite low. So if we can have an exponential growth in new molecules, what is that going to do for chemistry? That is super exciting, I think. That is very exciting. And to use another analogy, I've heard in the, the YouTube paradigm that there was the creation, the distribution, and the curation, right? First, people got the tools to create their own content. Then they got the tools to distribute the content. And then they got the tools to curate the content. So we are just on the first curve in chemistry of the creation and distribution, right? We're, we're not even there to the wide distribution of the world of any molecule you wanted. Hopefully, your group gets to realize that dream. Yeah, That's exactly. cool. Okay, so tell me a little bit about you. We'll round it out with some Lee Cronin devil in the dark details, which is uh, what's your most exciting lab moment or professional accomplishment to date? Oh, my most, I, I mean, I, the problem is I'm very, I'm always thinking about the future. So I guess the most exciting moment, I suppose, is probably, and also the saddest, were the last moments when we left through lockdown. Um, we've just been doing some of our first kind of chemify experiments and we showed that we could really take some quite hard syntheses out of the literature and they really ran in the robot. That was super exciting. Also, an approach I developed to um, a theory of molecular complexity that we are looking to find aliens with and also make aliens in the lab, we found actually worked. Not that we found aliens in the lab, but much that our tests that um, we could basically run the assay and it would tell us whether the molecule that was in the pot was a life, an evidence of life or evidence of non-life. And so understanding that the theory and then the high uh, kind of level analytical chemistry was working was really great because uh, I'm trying to convince NASA to put this method on a drone that's going to send to Titan called Dragonfly. And basically, a little mass spectrometer is going to fly around Titan searching for life. This and is based on isotopic ratios then. Must be. No, Sometimes. No, no. Oh, so, okay. In the middle of being accepted or rejected to a journal that you know very well. And Excellent. probably it's very hard work because all the prebiotic chemists say, what you're doing is impossible, can't be done. And all the astrochemists and the geologists are going, this is great. Of course it works. And it's not to do with isotopic ratios. It's needless to say, if you give me a molecule, I can tell you using a mass spectrometer um, if, there's a, if it has a little bit of resolution, not with isotopic ratios, but I can tell you how much information is in that molecule. Wow. I can't wait to know. I'm sure it'll involve quantum strange quarks or some, some such. Well, it's much simpler than you think. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. And then last thing, you've gone through a lot of it because we've been talking a while, but what's the tips you have for younger generations of scientists who are in these spaces, automation screening, other than what they should learn as undergrads? Um, how do they stay hungry and curious? What should they be picking up now? Well, okay. Um, I think that from the automation point of view, I think making sure that you are still learning the craft of chemistry. Um, I don't think we want to give up how we change the spark plugs and get the distance correct for the best spark yet. Knowing how that works is going to be important. But if you can start to learn to program, thinking about molecular modeling, digital um, kind of molecular identifiers, digital ones is really good. Then also uh, starting to think programmatically, maybe take a computing class, things like that. What I would say, to appeal to scientists in you, I mean, I, I didn't set out as an automator. I mean, I'm not really an automator. An organic chemist. Do you? Well, not even that. I'm kind of a chemical philosopher, right? I really wanted to be a philosopher or a physicist from as long as I can remember. But I, 
because I was in the learning difficulties class at school, and no one thought I could actually read or write. So it was kind of difficult to kind of convince people that I was able to do that. So I had some kind of limitations. But what dragged me through, if you like, was my curiosity. Um, and I have a genuine question, and that question feeds my vision for my team now and how I can keep 60 people funded and kind of in a job. I mean, obviously, they share that vision, and that is like, you know, where do we come from? And are we an isolated coincidence? And, and can we uh, understand, you know, how we could create life in the lab on Earth and find it elsewhere? So I think for younger scientists, if you've really got a problem, find a problem that no one else is working on, preferably, and use that to distinguish yourself as like, I would be able to take some risks on it. I know taking risks is really hard nowadays, then I would definitely go for that. But if you want to do what I did a bit is keep the risk secret for a while, just become really, really good at your thing. Um, and my thing was crystallography and inorganic chemistry. And then just kind of leak out your secret, you know, tell a few friends and so on and start to see if you can get funding for that, particularly in an academic context. I think that, that that's really worthwhile, but you have to become a master of something. And, um, you know, that can sometimes be distracting, but don't get distracted by making a new widget or climate change or cleaning up plastic. Not that you shouldn't be doing them, but I think that what scientists get paid to do is to ask how the universe works. Then when I invent a technology to help me look at how the universe works, then you save climate and make the plastic, right? I'm not saying don't do it. When I realized that the hardware I made could make the computer, it was, you know, I wanted to do it. I wanted to replace all the manual labor. I realized it could change the world for the chemists and the molecules have access to. So that came after. So getting your motivation right for you to drag you through the rejections and the people who don't believe what you're doing can work is important. Thank you. And I can't think of a much more uh, visionary or impactful way to stop that. And my personal mission is to bring amazing people on here and to tell them about how to help the world get better. So thumbs up. Thank you, Lee, for helping us with that. And thank you for your service on this call on to SLAS. Okay, thanks, Mike.